0: Okay, but we're going to turn to God's word now, and as we do, um, in criminology, I'm not a criminologist, uh, in criminology, there's a theory, isn't there, that criminals return to the scene of their crime, which is exactly what Jesus does here in this passage. At least he's a criminal returning to the scene of his crime in the minds of Jerusalem's religious leaders. Because just the day before, he had cast out the sellers and the buyers of the animals used for sacrifice in the temple court. And he had overturned the tables of the money changers. But now he comes back. And like the religious police that they were, the religious leaders challenge him. And it's all about authority. First point then a question of authority. I don't know if you um, watched much of it, but in all of the coverage of the Queen's funeral from uh, last week, one intervention caught my eye, and it was a criticism levelled at the current President of the United States by a former President of the United States, because the current President had been seated 14 rows back to which the previous president said, if I were president, that would not, they would not have sat me back there. And he added, no doubt it was a good time for our president to get to know the leaders of certain third world countries, because that's obviously who he was sat among, which I thought was amusing, because President Biden was actually sat, sat next to Ignazio Cassi, the current president of Switzerland. <laughs> Okay so I don't know how you are finding it living in a third world country you know I hope it's not hope it's not too hard on you this morning uh, but wherever they were sat I mean all of these heads of state all of these men and women with authority and power you as you look at them you had the full spectrum of views on authority, how they saw authority, how they use authority from authoritarian leaders who use power to stay in power to leaders willing to change what they say they believe based on what they think the people want. It's all about authority as you sit there watching them, how they use it, how they see it. And this interaction here with Jesus, between the leaders and Jesus, is also all about authority. It's about Jesus' authority, and it's about their authority. But it's also about, as you look at it, it's also about what will have the authority in your life. What's going to have the governing, controlling authority in your life? What is it going to be that tells you, that guides you, that instructs you in the person, the kind of person you should be, or the kind of person you should be becoming, or the kind of person you shouldn't be or shouldn't be becoming? What has that kind of authority in your life? Okay, look at verse 27. As Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Okay, so... Look at where it's happening. It is happening in the most authoritative place in Judaism, in the temple in Jerusalem. And the people interrogating Jesus are representatives from the three main parties of the highest religious authority in the land, the Sanhedrin. And they want to know what authority Jesus claims to do what he does verse 28. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And by these things, they are referring back to the events of the last few days, aren't they? You know, Jesus entering Jerusalem as the messianic king on a donkey to the acclaim of the crowd. Jesus clearing out the temple court. Who gave you the authority to do these things? But they're probably also looking back and thinking about other things as well because throughout Mark's gospel, the subject, the issue of Jesus' authority has kept on coming up. The authority of his teaching. No one teaches like him. Or the authority to forgive sins. Hey, only God can do that. The authority he claims over the Sabbath, to redefine the Sabbath, one of the defining issues of what it meant to be a member of God's people. The authority he demonstrated over demons, they have to obey him. And over creation, over wind and waves, they also have to obey him. An authority that leaves people asking, Who is this man? And it's this question of authority that has now risen to the highest authority in the land. Who gave you this authority? But if you think about it, there's a catch in that question, isn't there? And the stakes for Jesus are high. You see, if he says, my authority comes from God, well, they can charge him with blasphemy. that's, That's a crime that carries the death penalty. But if he says, my authority does not come from God it comes from somewhere else then they can charge him with being a false prophet which also carries the death penalty so they think they've got him in a corner they've got him in a catch-22 so how does Jesus respond he responds by asking them a question and he does it to expose their hearts verses 29 and 30 Jesus said to them I will ask you one question answer me And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me, answer me, you answer me. The highest authority in the land is questioning Jesus about his authority. And Jesus says, no, it is you who must answer to me. And Jesus gives them, gives them two options about John. Was John's ministry from heaven or from man? Was it by when John did what he did, was it from God's initiative or from human initiative? Was it God's authority or purely from his own human authority? Now why pick the baptism of John? And the answer is because all of John's ministry had been preparing for and pointing towards Jesus. And it was at Jesus's baptism by John that the spirit had come down on Jesus and the voice had come from heaven. Chapter one, verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. So it was at Jesus's baptism by John that Jesus was empowered and commissioned for his ministry. It was there, the mark of the authority that had been given to him. So, was John's ministry from God or from man? Because as one commentator puts it, a decision about John is a decision about Jesus. If John was acting on his own accord, he hadn't been sent by God, no God-given authority, then the Sanhedrin could go ahead and accuse Jesus. But if John's ministry was God's doing, if it really was coming with divine authority, if it was from heaven and not from man, then he, he really had been tasked to prepare the way for Jesus. And then the leaders have an answer to their question, don't they, of where Jesus' authority comes from. Okay, so how do they answer? Verses 31 and 32. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And now it's them who have a problem, isn't it? Because if they admit that John was sent by God, and you know, just remember, some of them, some of the Sanhedrin had gone out to be baptised by John and they had been rebuked by him in the process. Then, if they accept that he is from God, then they could not dismiss Jesus out of hand. But to say that John was not sent by God, that's not an option that's appealing to them, is it? Look what they say. But should we say from man? They don't even finish the sentence, do they? Because they don't need to. They, They all know the implication of what will happen if they go down that road. If they say that, verse 32, They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so verse 33 They answer Jesus, we do not know. And yet it's not that they don't know. It is that they are unwilling to know. It's that they are not willing to face the consequences of coming down on one side or the other. And what finally sways them is fear of the people. To dismiss Jesus, they would have to dismiss John. But they can't bring themselves to do that because the people didn't do that okay so picture it here are the men with the spiritual authority over Israel what has authority over them if you asked them they would say God God's law the Torah that's what has authority over us In reality, it's fear of what other people might say about them or do to them. Now, of course, in their case, the tragedy is is that the crowd had it right. But it's the principle that I want you to see, that to decide your response to the great questions of life, like John, Jesus, is this from God, is it not? To decide the great questions of life based on what, what the crowd thinks, that is a recipe for moral disaster. Okay, but ask yourself, why were they afraid of the crowd? Well, because they don't want the crowd to turn on them. Because if that happens, it's not just their good reputation that is at risk, it's their position. So regardless of what they would say to you, if you asked them what has authority over you, far from it being God and his law being the authority in their lives, in reality, it is the desire for position and to hold on to power and authority. It's the desire to maintain the approval of the crowd. That's what has the ruling authority in their lives. Now Bertrand Russell, the uh, British uh, writer and atheist wrote as soon as we abandon our own reason and are content to rely upon authority there is no end to our troubles. Okay, to which we might respond well, that depends on what authority you are relying on. But in agreement with him if rather than the truth, if Rather than having the truth as your authority, the crowd becomes your authority because you want their approval and the power that comes with that. He's right. It will lead you into all sorts of trouble and you will compromise on things you shouldn't. But it will also make you hide and you'll stay silent when you should speak. You see, these men, this Sanhedrin, they are responsible for the spiritual well-being of Israel. But for fear of the crowd, they hide what they really think and they hide from their responsibility to lead, to come to a decision, to come to a decision on the most important spiritual religious issue of their day. They're reduced to silence out of fear. So they're not just being dishonest with others, they are being dishonest with themselves. Okay, now think how that can happen with us. Because something or other is going to have this ruling, controlling authority, guiding authority over our lives, in what we do and in the type of person we are becoming. Okay, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, think how this might work out for you you might be hesitating to come to a decision about Christ because of what other people, maybe your family, your friends, might think if you do that. Or you might have already come to a decision, but you're hesitating to follow through on it, on the implications of it, because of what it might cost you. So just like them, we can hide from the truth and the crowd your family, your friends, your colleagues, can have more authority over your heart than the truth. And that can present problems in another area. You see, our current culture is taken up with the value of authenticity. That you shouldn't let any external authority tell you who you are or what you should do. But if you think about it deeply enough, all you are doing is exchanging one external authority for another. And you're throwing off the idea of external truth and reality, but what you're taking on yourself is the authority of the crowd. And the crowd takes the place of objective truth because you will only express those thoughts or those beliefs that you think are in agreement with those who matter to you. Views that they will applaud. But you'll stay silent about stuff that you think they won't applaud. So you're still hiding. You're still not the authentic you. Or for those of us who are Christians, we might stay silent about Christ when we should speak. Or hide from the implications of following him for what it might cost us. Deep down, we might know what we should do but we sort of convince ourselves otherwise. And what we do when we're doing that is we're hiding from ourselves. We're hiding from the truth and we're hiding from ourselves. Or as these men duck their responsibility to lead, when the, if the approval of others is the controlling authority over our lives and hearts, then we're gonna find it difficult to risk. We're going to find it difficult to act out of courage. Okay, but it's, it, it's because they're not willing to be honest even with themselves that Jesus knows they're not going to be honest with him. Verse 33. And Jesus said to them, "'Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things.'" Okay, but if they didn't want to say John had not been sent by God for fear of the crowd, what stopped them admitting that he was sent from God? Second point then, the problem of ownership. Question of authority, problem of ownership. And as the leaders stand there, Jesus tells them a parable. Chapter 12, verse one. A man planted a vineyard. Now, that may not strike you as anything. If you were stood in that crowd, you would immediately have known what Jesus was talking about. Because in the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly referred to as being like God's vineyard. In fact, as Jesus tells this parable, he is using Isaiah chapter 5 as his raw material. Isaiah 5, 1-2. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. You just see the parallels between the parable Jesus tells and the one that Isaiah says. And in this short parable, Jesus is compressing nearly 2,000 years of Israel's history because God is the man who plants the vineyard and the tenants he leases it to are the leaders of the people, like the Sanhedrin standing in front of him. But their tenants not owners now if you think about it there are some distinct advantages to being an owner rather than a tenant aren't there okay like of your apartment or your house because if you're an owner and not just a tenant you can decorate it however you want can't you you can paint the walls some hideous color and not the sterile swiss white if you're an owner you can flush your toilet after 10 p.m at night okay no one can complain at you and you don't have to pay rent but a tenant farmer does and in those days they paid rent from the yield of the land and so verse 2 jesus says to the owner he says the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard but the tenants refused to pay they abused the servant and every subsequent servant, the owner sent. Verse five, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And the servants are the prophets whom God had sent over the course of Israel's history to call Israel's leaders and people back to him. But time and again, the leaders refused. Okay, as God said through the prophet Jeremiah, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear. And many of those prophets, up to and including John the Baptist, had suffered at the hands of the leaders or, like John, been martyred at the hands of the leaders. Why? What is the fruit that God could want from leaders and people, from you and from me, that they are determined not to give him? But if you think about it, when Jesus was asked the question, what is the greatest commandment in the law? It's as if he's being asked that question, isn't it? What does God require of us? What fruit does God require us to give him? What fruit is he after? And Jesus replied, that you love him. That you love him with your whole heart, soul, mind and strength. And that you love your neighbour as yourself. What fruit is he after? He is after you. He's after your heart. He is after your undivided love for him. And then that spilling out into your other relationships. And God had sent prophet after prophet like a loving but spurned husband, continually reaching out because he wanted them and he wants us to come into all the goodness of a relationship of love with him. Because that's the only way we're going to thrive, he says. It's the only way you are going to live a really fruitful life and a fulfilled life. If you give your heart to other things, like the admiration of the crowd, or the desire to stay in power or in control, or a desire for position, those things are going to enslave you. And you're going, to live in, you're going to live as they did, with this constant underlying anxiety. What if I do that? What if I do that? What will people say about me? You'll be living under the fear of man. But when you know his love for you, your heart will respond with the fruit of love for him. But repeatedly, Israel's leaders had refused to do that, as these leaders refuse now. Why? Because they want to be the owner. They want to stay in control. Because their love is set on something other than God. And if we're honest, the same can be true for us. And when it is, we stop seeing ourselves as stewards of all the good things that God has entrusted to us, like your intellect like your musical abilities, like your material possessions, like your salary, like your wealth. And we use them for our own glory and our own good rather than God's glory and others' good. We use them to serve ourselves. So what can turn that around? What can cause us not just to make God the authority of our lives, but for him to be the love of our hearts? Third point, the answer of grace. And having sent servant after servant, Jesus says of the owner, verse six, He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. I don't know about you as you read that. What do you I mean, what is going through the owner's mind? What owner in his right mind would send his son and a beloved son into such a situation? Everything should be screaming at him, you know how this is going to turn out. You know what is going to happen. What owner in his right mind would do that? Who would do it? Only a God of grace. Only a God who is merciful and compassionate a god who is abounding in steadfast love a god who will go to the furthest extremes of love to give people the chance to come in and jesus is the beloved son sent as his father's representative sent with his father's authority sent to his father's house looking for the fruit of love in this his father's last and final appeal to the elders and the leaders. But of course, the tenants don't just want to keep hold of the fruit. They want the land. Verses 7 and 8. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What is that? That is the age-old desire of the human heart, isn't it? It is to be rid of God and to replace him with ourselves. And none of this parable is lost on the leaders standing there. Mark tells us in verse 12 that they perceived he had told this parable against them. But instead of taking it to heart, they plot to arrest him. And so ironically, they begin to fulfill the role that Jesus has written for them in the parable. That is a sobering reminder that you can know what God's word is saying, but not be willing to do it. And so Jesus asked them a rhetorical question. Verse nine, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others because God is patient but his patience has an end to it. There is a limit. And as Jesus cleared out the temple, foreshadowing the destruction of the temple, so here he foreshadows the destruction of the leaders so that others might take their place. That as the court of the Gentiles was cleared for the gathering in of the Gentiles, so God is going to raise up new leaders over God's one united people the true Israel the church of Jew and Gentile Now, of course you might hear that and say great but these leaders they're not going to go quietly are they okay well look what Jesus says in verse 10 have you not read this scripture the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone And he's quoting Psalm 118, the same psalm that the pilgrims sang as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And the word translated cornerstone there could mean just that, the stone on which everything else in a building is built. Or it could mean the the capstone, the keystone, the the, the central stone in a bridge that holds up the arch of a bridge. Whichever it is, Jesus' point is clear, isn't it? The very thing the leaders are turning their backs on is the very thing that God is going to use to build his new temple and establish its new leaders. And that cornerstone, it's Christ. The one around whom God's people gather and are built up as his dwelling place. It's why Peter, who was here when Jesus said this, writes as we read in our responsive reading at the start, as you come to him, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it all happens because Jesus is first rejected. That at the cross, he might become the atoning sacrifice for sin. That in the leaders destroying him, he becomes the final and ultimate and true temple of God. Because his authority is not based on the approval of the crowd or the desire to hold on to the trappings of power. Instead, he humbled himself, and his authority was to give his life as a ransom for many, that the one combined people of God, the church of God, Jew and Gentile, would be built on him and bear the fruit of love and worship, not through the self service of leaders, but through the self sacrifice of the Son. That's why Jesus continues to quote Psalm 118 in verse 11. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Guys, it is marvellous. When you get, when it sinks in, when it dawns on you that the Son of God came to the vineyard knowing what awaited him there, but he did it to save you to save you from the sin of letting someone else shape you instead of letting him do that, the sin of wanting to be our own owner, the sin of failing to love God and neighbor as we should. And he came to save us from that and he does it because he loves us. When we get that, we will see that as marvelous. And when we do, he'll have your heart not just your authority, his authority over you, he'll have your heart. You'll obey him because you love to obey him. And with your heart, he will become the forming, shaping, sending authority over your life. Let's pray.